Hello, people of the way. Blessings in Jesus. If you have your Bible, please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 11, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 11. We continue our study through the Old Testament. Now, remember last week in chapter 10 where, you know, Saul is king and the people cry out, long live the king, long live the king. Remember last week in chapter 10? And at the end of chapter 10, we see a little um, a, a splinter group, a little sp splinters in his government where we see the rebellion. Uh, that was in verse 27 last week in chapter 10. 10. And remember, we're in the Judges era. We're in the Judges era. And in the book of Judges, we've seen how, how there is oppression and, you know, multiple times at multiple uh, intervals of time. But what we also see in the book of Judges, remember our study. And if you're listening for the first time, go back and listen to our study through the book of Judges because you'll understand more. But not just oppression, but we see why there is oppression. And it has everything to do with formula. Formula. It must be right. When it's wrong, it, it gets pretty bad. When it's really wrong, it gets very bad. And, you know, here in chapter 11, we're going to see an oppressor of Israel. And we're going to see what happens. Now, let's begin our study here in 1 Samuel chapter 11. In verse 1, then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. Now, so just to, to have this properly panned out here, you know, we have these two factions, the Ammonites on one side and the Jews on the other side. So Ammonites and Jews. So Ammon, the, Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead and the Jews there, they live in Jabesh Gilead. And it's the Ammonites who came to the Jews and now they're encamped against the Jews in, in, in Jabesh Gilead. And all the men, we see in verse 1, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. I mean, so much for a fight. I mean, they're, I mean they, see the, they see the Ammonites, the, the Jews and Jabesh Gilead, they see the Ammonites and like, okay, you know, like we surrender, you know, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. You see, they did, there wasn't even a fight. Now, there's several things to remember here. Several things to remember here. Jabesh Gilead, they have a population problem. You know, there, there, there was, there, with their population problem, remember in our prior studies how they had like a, a, there was a whole bunch of people that were killed there in Jabesh Gilead. And the reason why is because that's from the judgment that was given to those who didn't participate in the judgment of Benjamin. Remember our study in Judges? Very difficult passage because, you know, remember the gang rape at the priest's concubine? Remember that? A very, very difficult subject matter when we when we study that in, in the book of Judges. Very difficult. And you see the gang rape of the priest's concubine? Well, the, the judgment that was given as a result of that, and, and for those who didn't participate in, in, in that battle, uh, that there was a bunch of people that were killed as a result. And so it's of extreme importance to remember that Jabesh Gilead, you know, they, the, the majority, they didn't come to fight uh, uh, and they were killed as a result. But it's very, very important for us to remember that what was left, it was the virgins. You see, it was the virgins. Very important to understand what's happening in the book of Judges. Uh, because it's going to help us in our studies in the Old Testament, our studies in the New Testament, and even for last day's prophecies. 
because we see the remnant of, of the virgins. They live, you see. Now, we're not going to restudy Judges, the book of Judges, but if you're listening for the first time, you know, you, you hear us mention, you know, the, the gang rape and the goings on of Israel and the roller coaster of events and, you know, even not just gang rape. I mean, not, not to say not just gang rape because it's severe. I mean, when you go and listen to our studies in the book of Judges, it's very, very difficult subject matter. But then you see the mutilation and blood in every tribe, heavy, heavy passages. But if you're listening and you haven't heard those studies, go back and listen to those studies in the book of Judges because you're going to understand a lot more. And it's going to help you not just understand the Old Testament. It's going to help you understand the New Testament. And it's going to help you as believers in these last days because we look at purity, purity and holiness. You see? And so this remnant that survived in Gilead, it was the virgins. It was the virgins. Remember, the book of Judges, an era where the Lord has become forgotten. Now, as New Covenant believers, it's not just virgins. When we look at Matthew 25, it's not just virgins. Remember the 10 virgins in Matthew 25? Remember, wise virgins. Wise virgins. You see? And so, when we look at passages that pertain to uh, uh, a, a remnant of virgins, this should you know, provide great, great comfort as we, you and me, and the remnant as we comfort one another during perilous times. Very important to understand what the Word of God says. Very, very specific recipe. Very, very specific formula. You see? And it's also interesting to note here the oppressors of Israel here in 1 Samuel chapter 11, who, who, who they target, who the oppressors target, who the Ammonites target. They don't go to the heavily populated cities and towns, you see. They target the small and the vulnerable. Very interesting to see how, you know, the oppressors work and how oppression works. And at the same time, who are the ones who are often targeted in the Old Testament, New Testament, and still today? It's the vulnerable. The vulnerable. I mean, look at the, look at the demonic attacks on children today, you see. The vulnerable among us. Look at how children. I meant, you know, if you were a child in the 50s and you were a child in the 80s, you were a child in, you know, in, in, in the 90s. But then you look at children today, it's like night and day. You can kind of see how things are intensifying, you know. You know, growing up, if you're in one of my older brothers or sisters and you were a child in the 50s or, you know, maybe even the 40s. But, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, they, they had their share of attacks on the vulnerable. But then you get into the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and it's just intensifying. And you look at children today. Oh my goodness, they're like on the front lines of battle. On the front lines of battle. And it's so sad because they're vulnerable. Very important to understand when we look at the Old Testament and you see these attacks on the vulnerable, but then as New Covenant believers, we still see attacks on the vulnerable, except it's in the pneumos. In the pneumos, you see? The spirit realm. And yes, in the spirit realm, there is holy, but there is also demonic and satanic you see and these are things that we have to understand things that we're studying it just so happens in the book of mark if you're listening for the first time go back and listen to our study in the book of mark start in chapter one and then get yourself caught up because it will help us grow mature and you know have the, not just this knowledge which is a gift of the holy spirit but it's going to equip us 
for these last days, the rise of demonic activity. Because the demons, Satan, they know their time is short. And as they're intensifying their fight, look at the church. Look at the church. You see? Very important to see. You see, like the church as prophesied is asleep. And the church is taking casualties as prophesied. And taking casualties, look at the apostasy that is spreading. This is all according to prophecy, just like our Lord tells us. You see? Nothing new under the sun. The destruction of innocence. The destruction of innocence. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. And you still see it today. You see? But today, where are the warriors? Where are the fighters? You see, where are those with understanding? Where are those with the right formula? You see? Not treating the Lord like the good luck charm. Remember when we looked at, you know, the earlier chapters in the, in the book of 1 Samuel? <clears throat> Not treating the Lord like a good luck charm. But having the right formula. Because you look at Israel, when they had a battle, when they went to war, and they just figure, oh, you know what? We're going to have the ark, the ark of the Lord with us. And what they were doing is they were treating the, the Lord, th treating holy matters like a good luck charm. You see? And you have Christians today, you know, they put crosses everywhere. Oh, I'm going to put a cross on this wall, on this wall. I'm going to have a cross on my, on, in my car. I'm going to have a cross over here at my workplace. I'm going to have a cross over here in my locker. I'm going to have a cross over here. Crosses everywhere. And then they take, you know, oil. And they say, oh, you know, I'm going to put oil here, oil here, oil here. And they're treating holy things like it's a good luck charm. You see, what about you and me carrying our cross? What about you and me being holy, not externally, internally, you see, internally. Put the, the cross over here on this wall, cross over here on this wall, cross over here on this wall. And that's what people do. They put crosses everywhere and then they watch their dirty, dirty movies. You see, they put crosses everywhere in their house and then they, you know, go to the prostitutes in the casinos and do their crack and do their alcohol. And But meanwhile, they got all these crosses on the wall and figure, okay, you know, the spiritual warfare, I'm ready for spiritual warfare. No, no, that's defeat. That's treating holy things like a good luck charm. The very same thing that we see in Israel's battle. And what happened when they treated the Ark of the Lord like a good luck charm? They lost. Major, major casualties. They lost. You see? Does that mean there's no power with the Lord? Not at all. But when we understand the word of God, we learn about effectuation. Effectuation of God's promises. You see, nothing new under the sun. Our Lord teaches us the word of God. The word became flesh. Genesis to Revelation, the word became flesh. You see? And so we see these attacks, Old Testament, New Testament, and still today. But then at the same, same time, we start to learn about tactics. You see? Tactics of the enemy and then tactics for us. Very important to understand what the Word of God teaches. And so here in 1 Samuel chapter 11, opposition comes to the Jews of Jabesh Gilead. And they immediately make a deal, you know, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. <clears throat> and Nahash the Ammonite answered them, on this condition, I will make a covenant with you that I may put out your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Wow. Some deal. Straight up, some deal. And so Nahash the Ammonite, he's willing to make a deal, but there are strings attached. 
What does he say? I want your right eyes. That's what he tells them. I want your right eyes. Very interesting how it's not for their eyes. You know, he's not just saying, you know, I want your eyes just so I can have your eyes. No, he says, I want, I want your right eyes. Why? The purpose is to bring reproach on all Israel. To bring reproach on all Israel. Wow. Now you might think like, you know, well, that's Old Testament. So this doesn't pertain to me. A person might say that. You know how I respond? Au contraire. Au contraire. Because look at Christians today. Look at Christians today who have given an eye to demons. Just like in this proposition of Nahash, the Ammonite, you know, this proposition is like, yeah, I'll make this deal with you, but give me your right eye. And so you look at Christians today. Not the, not the Ammonite, but a demon. Given an eye to demons where one eye is in the Bible, but then the other eye is on the strippers, the prostitutes, pornography, alcohol, Buddha, you see, things of the occult. Yeah, one eye is on the Bible, which, you know, seems to be good. But don't forget, we have two eyes. One eye is in the word and the other eye is in the world. You see? And yes, it's very damaging to oneself. Very damaging to oneself. But then look at the reproach it brings upon the church. You see? Look at the reproach it brings on the church. And it's very interesting to see Nahash when he makes this, the, the Ammonite, when he makes this proposition to Israel. No, don't forget, Israel says, you know, we will serve you. You know, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. But then the Ammonite, you know, Nahash, sure, sure. But, you know, on this condition, I'll go ahead and, you know, I'll accept your offer. But, you know, let me make my counter offer. I want your eyes. All of you, I want your right eye. And it's not for the sake of having a pile of eyes. No, the purpose is to bring reproach on all Israel. And as New Covenant believers, knowing that we live above reproach, we strive to live above reproach. And not for the sake of religion and for the sake of pleasing the Lord. That's why. Lives that are a sweet aroma unto the Lord. Forget people. Forget people, but we live above reproach. Why? To please our Lord. It is pleasing to Him to be a sweet, a, a sweet aroma unto Him. You know, one of the one of the uh, 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 results of doing that is that we are above reproach. You see. And a lot of times you see pastors and teachers, you know, they, they always, you know, we got to be above reproach, above reproach, above reproach. But then it turns into religion. But then when you start to think differently, when you start to think differently about, wait a second, let's just, let's hit pause for a moment and let's forget all the people. I mean, if you and me were in a church fellowship face to face where, you know, I could see you, you could see me and face to face and we're in a church fellowship, probably a small church. And we're in a church fellowship, you and me. And we say, you know what? Let's forget about everybody. Let's forget about, you know, family, relatives, and, you know, uh, uh, churches, pastors, teachers, co-workers, teammates. Let's forget about every single person. And let's just please the Lord. 
Let's just please the Lord. Let's you and me live lives that desires, a genuine desire, not like, you know, like, you know, you know, what, you know, you have to do this or you do this, you do this, you do this, or you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this. Even though there's aspects of our lives as believers where there are things we do and there are things we don't do. But rather than turn it into a, you know, uh, uh, like, you know, like a, like a, like a, like a, a logical thing. You know how you ever see somebody play the piano? And they play the piano, they can read the notes, and they can hit the keys. They know that this little note means this, and this little note means this, and this little symbol means you flow it like this, or you attempt to flow it like this, and you hit the pedals and do all these things, and you got the white keys, you got the black keys, and you got all these things. And they can look at sheet music, and they can see, like, you know, this is, you know, when you got this little bar across the note, that means you have to play it in a certain succession at a certain tempo. You look at the tempo, and it's like, okay, I can read the music. But then the person just hits the keys, you know, bing, 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 and it sounds like robotic. But then you take another person who can read the music, but there's something deeper there. Say that person is an intimate friend of the composer. And in intimacy with the composer, the, this other musician knows that the composer was at a specific moment in his life where, you know, that there was, you know, something happening in his life and it was like something beautiful in his life and he put it to music and the composer is like world class. And this musician has intimate relationship with this composer. And so when this musician plays it, the, the musician plays it with a deep, profound love for this composer that put this to music. And not just a deep, profound love for this composer, but a profound love by the, it, it, for the music that was put onto this paper that was written at this beautiful moment in the composer's life. And when it, the, the new musician knows the notes, knows the keys, knows the, the white keys, the black keys, knows all about, you know, how to read music, knows all about tempo, knows all about the pedals, you know, and then all of a sudden the music is different. It's not just, you know, hitting keys like, you know, the bing, 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 bing. No, it flows and it's so beautiful. And you hear music like that and all of a sudden it's completely different, completely different. Why? Because the musician has a deep profound, intimate relationship with the composer. You see, and it's reflected in the music being played. And so a lot of times, you know, you see pastors and teachers and what they do is they teach like, you know, like a, 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 like a, in a religious manner, you know, we got to do this, 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 and we don't do this, 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 this. And, you know, and yes, there are rules by which we live by. But at the same time, when there's a profound love, it's completely different. Why? Because we're not living lives in a manner that appears to be holy or that strives to appear to be holy with carnal impulses or carnal reasons or anything carnal. You see, it's different. Why? 
because just like we mentioned earlier, you and me are in an intimate church setting, small church, not a lot of people. And we say, you know what? Let's, let's you and me, let's us. Let's forget about every single person around us in our lives, you know, co-workers, relatives, this, that. Let's forget about all of that. And it's all about the Lord. You and me living lives that are pleasing unto the Lord, a sweet aroma unto him. You see, a sweet aroma unto him. It's not about religion, not about religion at all. It's because we have a deep Deep, deep, profound love for the Lord and His Word. You see, it's different. It's different. Very important to understand what the Word of God teaches. Just like, just with with, with Jeremiah. Look at all the prophets that were in the era of Jeremiah's day in Judah. All the prophets in Judah. And when the Lord speaks, He doesn't speak to them. He speaks to Jeremiah. You see, I mean, you take a lineup of all the prophets and the one that was denied was Jeremiah. Why? Because the Lord was with him. You see, so why was he denied? The people forgot the Lord. You see, the Lord became forgotten in the people and they heap up for themselves the, the prophets that they like, the prophets that tells them the good things. Where was Jeremiah? Alone. That's why they called him the weeping prophet, the lonely weeping prophet. But where was the Lord with Jeremiah? Where was Jeremiah with the Lord? You see, a deep, deep, deep intimacy with the Lord. You take a lineup of all the prophets. And there was one in whom the formula was right. You see, very important to understand. And so you look at the church today, just like here when this deal, you know, when Nahash of the Ammonites, you know, yeah, I'll make a covenant with you, but this one condition, I want your eyes. And not for the sake of having a big pile of, you know, Jewish eyes. No. He wanted to bring a reproach on all Israel. Reproach on all of Israel. And so, hey, I want your eyes. You see, even though, yeah, you have a stack of eyes, but, you know, like, and then you understand the reason for the stack of eyes. You see? And you say, well, that's just Old Testament. That's just Old Testament. Come on, get on with the point. Don't forget, the things of old were written for us, written for our admonition. And you look at the reproach on the church when you see Christians today where they have one eye in, 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 in the Bible, but then they got their other eye on Buddha, you see, on the occult, on the strippers, on the pornography, you see, on the gambling, on all kinds of things of the world. What do you see? A divided heart. And what does it do? Is it like, well, is it like okay, well, so, so you, you have Christians that are lukewarm. Well, that's kind of a big deal because in the word of God, you know, the, the book of Revelation, you look at Revelation, uh, you know, when, when Jesus, the, the, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, when the Lord says, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out. You see, I'm going to vomit you out in the body and now expelled out of the body. So you might say, well, what? no big deal with being lukewarm. No, it's a huge deal. But then you look at the reproach on the church, on the church. Look at the reproach on fellowships. Remember Corinth? Remember our study in the book of Corinth? Very difficult study in some of the earlier chapters 
Very difficult study because in Corinth, inside the church, in the body of believers, there was a guy who was doing the sex with his dad's wife. You see? His dad's wife. I mean, yeah, there's there's sexual sin and not to not to gloss over that, but with the, the sex with the dad's wife. And then Paul said, listen, not even non-believers do that. You see, not even the Gentiles do that. Not even those who don't believe do that. And yet you see it in the church. You see. And when you look at the world and you look at the church, there should be. There should be major differences. You see, there should be. But when you look today, you look at the church today, they're almost identical. Almost identical. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken with non-believers and they say, why, why should I go to church? Why should I be a believer? Because in that church over there, in that church over there, and these Christians over here, and these Christians over here, their lives are just like mine. The only difference is that they, you know, spend an hour at church. But yeah, their lives are just like mine. They do the crack, they do the drugs, they do the alcohol, they do the sex, they do all these things. And why should I go to church? It's, there's no difference. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to non-believers who express that very thing. What's the difference? You see, you look at the church today and there is no difference with the world. That's a major problem. A major problem. But it's also a sign of the end. You see? And so we have to understand what this reproach, what it does. And so many times you hear pastors, you know, oh, we got to be above reproach. We got to be above reproach. So don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And it turns into religion. But it's just like the law. Remember when Paul wrote in, in our study in the book of Romans, if you've been walking with us for a while, when Paul says that, you know, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't know that this was a bad thing. And the things I do, I don't want to do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. You remember that? And Paul wrote about that. It's like, wait a second. Because of the law, there is now knowledge of sin. And this is where pastors get into great, great, great error. Because they use that same technique, so to speak. And they use that same technique to say, okay, as believers, we don't do this. We don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. But remember, Satan is crafty. I mean, you tell a child, you put you put a candy bar on a chair and you say, hey, child, you know, baby girl, hey, my son, you know, don't touch this candy bar. And then you walk away to another room. You say, hey, son, don't touch this candy bar. Hey, baby girl, don't touch this candy bar. And then you go away to another room. Five minutes later, you walk back. That candy bar is gone. That candy bar is gone. What happened? Baby girl ate the candy bar. Baby girl ate the chocolate bar. Then you say, hey, baby girl, come here. Baby girl comes over. Did you eat the candy bar that I told you not to eat? Baby girl's going to say, no, I didn't do that. And have chocolate all over her face. No, I didn't eat that. And like chocolate all over, chocolate on the shirt, everything. And baby girl, see, baby girl, she disobeyed. You know, don't eat the chocolate bar. You see, she disobeyed. On top of that, she's trying to cover it up with a lie. No, I didn't do that. Baby girl, did you eat the chocolate bar? No, I didn't do that. And chocolate all over the face. You see what's that? You see how crafty Satan is? You see how crafty Satan is? Now you say, wait a second. That's just baby girl. Baby girl and chocolate. It's so cute. It's so cute. Listen. Yeah, there's the cute factor there. 
But even Satan uses a cute factor because say baby girl is, you know, uh, uh, four years old. Baby girl's four years old and she's never corrected by the parent. Never corrected by the parent. Well, four-year-old baby girl is going to turn into 10-year-old baby girl. Never corrected by the parent. And then 10-year-old baby girl is going to turn into 15-year-old baby girl. Never corrected by the parent. Oh, look, the parents just love her. The parents want to be good friends with baby girl. And then baby girl is going to be 20 years old. Never corrected by the parent. Never learned about being respectful and honoring the parents and listening to the parents. But then at the same time, learning that covering up uh, 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 disobedience with a lie, learning that that's okay, that's permissible, that's completely okay in the eyes of the parents. You see, that it's okay to cover up uh, bad behavior with a lie. Now, baby girl, you know, finds a boyfriend, baby girl gets a job. Baby girl moves out. Baby girl does all these things. Never learning these very important principles in life. Baby girl's in trouble. Baby girl's in danger. Oh, but look, mom and dad, they, they really love baby girl. They really love baby girl. But remember, the word of God teaches us what love is. And the word of God teaches us how to love. You see? And when you understand that, you start to see like, wait a second. I know that it looks like mom and dad love baby girl, but because they didn't prepare baby girl, can we call that love? You see, very important to, you know, the, when the word of God teaches us, you say, well, that's pretty hardcore. Listen, the Lord teaches us about all of these aspects of life. You see why? Because he wants us in paradise. He loves you. He loves me. He loves us. But there are very specific blueprints for righteousness, for holiness. And when we look at these very specific blueprints, it's not like, you know, like, okay, we do this, 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 and we don't do this, this, this. Because once you get into the we don't do this without a reason for why we don't do or why we do do, then it turns into religion. And that's where a lot of pastors get into major, major error. Because it's just like baby girl with the chocolate bar. And just like what, what Paul says, you know, how would I know if there, what sin was had it not been for the law? You see, the things I don't, the things I do, I don't want to do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And who can save me from this, this, this wretchedness I am? It is Jesus Christ. And then Paul writes about not taking advantage of God's grace and mercy and his love. You see? Not using our freedom in Christ as an excuse or reason for vice. Very important what the word of God teaches us. You see? But it's very interesting to see here in 1 Samuel chapter 11 how the Ammonite king, or Nahash, the Ammonite, how he makes this condition. Yeah, I'll make this covenant. Yeah, you know, he, I mean, you, you would think like, sure, you know, look, I get a, a, a servant class. Yeah, you know, I get a servant class. They can work over here. They can work with the, with the army. They can work with over here. They can work on the fields. They can do these. Okay, yeah, well, you know, I get a servant class. And you would think like, okay, sure, I'll make this deal with you. But no, the Ammonite, no, he says, yeah, you know, We'll do that, but I'm going to raise the ante a little bit. We'll do that, but I also, I want your eyes. You see? And why was that? To bring reproach on all Israel. 
Just like our studies in the in the epistles, you think you think you know Satan? He's not scared of baby Christians. He's not scared. You know, First Corinthians. Why? Because you look at the tactics of spiritual warfare. Look at what Satan can do with a lukewarm church. Look at what Satan can do with a lukewarm church. Say you and me are in Corinth. We get in my time machine. We go back in time, and we're believers. We're believers of the Chloe type, the beautiful, beautiful Chloe type. And you and me, we go back in time and here we are in in the city of Corinth. And we evangelize. You and me. We go and evangelize. And we talk to a person. And we share the good news with a person. But then the person stops us and says, wait a second. I get what you're saying. But why would I want to be a Christian When there's this Christian over here who's having sex with his dad's wife. You see? Why would I want to be a believer? When, you know, there's all this sex going on in the church among you Christians. There's all this sex. Why would I want to be a Christian? When you Christians, you're extorting your employers. Why would I want to be a Christian? When, you know, you know, I go to the bars at night and I see you Christians there, you know, like tumbled over on sleeping on the floor, passed out on the floor. Why would I want to be a Christian? And you're telling me about good news? So Satan gets like a twofer because there's leaven in the church. And, you know, leaven opens the door to, you know, even worse wickedness. That's why Paul says to the remnant, separate. But Satan gets a twofer. Because all of a sudden, you and me, we're trying to evangelize. We go back in time and we're of the Chloe type. And we go and we try to evangelize. And the people who oppose us, they make a valid they make a valid claim. They make a very valid claim. You know, why would I want to be a Christian when I see the extortion? You think I want that? Why would I want to be a Christian when I see the sex? You're telling me about holiness when I see the sex like this, when I see the drugs like this, when I see the alcohol like this, when I see the extortion like this, when I see all the Buddha, when I see all the occult, when I turn on the TV and watch the news and see a pastor who raped somebody, a youth leader who molested a child, you think I want to be a Christian? You see how Satan gets a twofer? On one side, he has a lukewarm church, leaven. The leaven got there for a reason. You see, the leaven got there for a reason. But then on the other side, you and me were trying to evangelize and were met with this opposition, immediately opposition, and they make a valid claim. You see, and there's that spiritual detox to help them understand like, well, you know what? That's not, they're not following the Bible. They make a valid claim like, you know, look, you know, and I've had these conversations with the non-believers. Why? Why would I want to be a Christian when I turn on TBN, Tricking Believers Nightly, and I see all kinds of mess? Why would I want that? And then the non-believer almost is kind of shocked when I'm like, look it, I don't want that either. And they're like, what? You're, you're talking to me about Christianity and you're telling me that I, you don't want what I don't want? You see? And they're kind of like taken aback, like, well, you know, like, well, what are you talking about? And then we get the meat and potatoes of the Bible. You see? Very interesting. How Satan works and his tactics. How he gets the two-furs, in some cases three-furs, and four-furs, and five-furs. But the Word of God teaches us about tactics as well. 
How to fight the good fight. How to fight the good fight and be warriors in these last days. You see? And Satan, he doesn't... Babies, you know, babies are beautiful. Don't, don't get me wrong. Babies are beautiful, but babies have to grow and mature. When babies stay babies, that's not good. That's not good because that opens the door to leaven, which opens the door to even worse apostasies. And that's why Paul says separate. As the remnant, you have to separate from the leaven because a little leaven leavens the bunch. You see? And so when we look at passages like this in the Old Testament where the Ammonite Nahash, he makes this deal here like, you know, yeah, sure. I, I'll take you as servants, but on this condition, I also want your eyes. But the purpose is to bring reproach on Israel. And Satan, he wants to bring reproach on the church. He wants to bring reproach on the church. Why? To make Christians hypocrites. That's why. So that Christians can be hypocrites. And when Christians are hypocrites, you know what that means? No effectuation of God's promise. You see? A promise is plurality. No effectuation. And if there's no effectuation, it also you start, start to see the quenching of the Spirit. Or the extinguishing of the Spirit. See, Satan knows all this. And he wants Christians in these last days to be without power. You see? Christians in the last days to be without power. Prior to the revealing of Antichrist, when Satan finds his host, and prior to that is the apostasy of Christians. And that is already underway. It's well underway. And Satan is very effective. Very, very effective. But the Word of God teaches us how to be warriors. So when we look at this reproach on Israel, don't forget reproach on the church, you see? And so when we look at our lives, you know, living above reproach, it's not like a robotic type of thing. It's not that we apply logic and intellect to what the Word of God says. It's faith. It's faith. It's not to say like take logic and intellect and throw it in the trash. It's to take logic and intellect and dethrone logic and intellect. You see? That's what the saint is to do. And not just in these last days, in any era. That's what the saint is to do. And so here in 1 Samuel, the Ammonite king, he wants their eyes. Nahash. Now, Remember the deal that was presented to him was, you know, we'll serve you. And so Nahash makes his counteroffer. And then look what happens here in verse 3. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. Now, this reveals quite a lot about the state of Israel. And not the state as in territory, but the condition of Israel. Because if the formula was right... If the formula was right in Jabesh, uh, the Jews of Jabesh, if the formula was right, number one, the Ammonites, they wouldn't dare rise up against Israel. They would not dare rise up against Israel. But if the formula was close to being right, <clears throat> the Ammonite king, the, you know, the, the, uh, 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 Nahash, the Ammonite, the, the Ammonite, he wouldn't agree to wait seven days. 
He wouldn't agree to wait seven days because, you know, in seven days, Jabesh might have backup. You know, if, 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 if in Jabesh, you know, if, if they're a little wishy-washy, you know, they, you know, they might have backup in two days. They might have backup tomorrow. They might have backup, you know, in two hours. You see, and that's if the formula was right in Israel or close to being right. Because it, it wouldn't be well for the Ammonites. And what this does, it reveals, you know, the condition of Israel at this particular juncture in time. It reveals a lot about the condition of Israel. Now, remember, in the judges era where we're at here in 1 Samuel 11, They've forsaken the Lord. They've forsaken the Lord. The Lord has become forgotten and they have forsaken the Lord and they have a new king now. It's Saul. And as a, as a, a little side note, you know, the taking of the eyes, this is, you know, what's written in the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is something that was a common practice of the Ammonites to do this, the taking of eyes. So it was common practice. So when they come to Jabesh, according to the Dead Sea Scrolls, this, you know, this what happened in Jabesh or, you know, this taking of the eyes or this proposition to take the eyes, you know, according to Dead Sea Scrolls, this was a common practice of the Ammonites. That's what they would do. Why? And we see how the Bible here reveals the reason. It's not for the eyes. It's to bring reproach on Israel. That's why the Ammonites want the eyes, to bring reproach on Israel. You see these tactics? You see these tactics? Don't forget, the Bible was written for our admonition. Paul says, the things of old were written for you and for me. Why? For admonition. What does that mean? To warn us. To warn us. And a lot of Christians today, a lot of pastors today, oh yeah, we don't really, we don't really focus as on the Old Testament because we're new covenant believers. Listen, if you have a pastor like that, flee from him. Because Paul says these things of old were written for our warning. You see? I mean, warnings can be severe, but warnings are kind of nice. You know, when, when you're walking on a path or you're driving in a car, you see the signs, you know, slow down. You know, you see you're, you're, it's a turn, but you don't realize it's a sharp turn on the road. You're going, you know, 80 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour. And you don't realize it's like a very, very sharp turn. And, you know, you see the signs that say, that, you know, reduce speed 10 miles an hour. And sometimes it comes out of nowhere, reduce speed, 10 miles an hour, 10 miles an hour. Sometimes you see multiple, multiple signs, 10 miles an hour, then, you know, like a couple, you know, several yards pass or, you know, like, you know, hundred yards pass and, you know, uh, slow down, you know, 10 miles per hour. And sometimes you see the lights even slow down 10 miles an hour. And, you know, you're on the highway and you're still going 50. You just figure, yeah, I'll take the turn. You're going 60 miles, 70 miles an hour. Yeah, I'll take the turn. But you don't realize it's like a 90 degree turn. And boom, the turn comes and boom, you fly out and you fly off the cliff and blow up and say goodnight. You see? And so when you have pastors, oh, you know, we, we don't read the Old Testament because, you know, we're, we're new covenant believers and we believe in the New Testament. If you have a pastor like that, flee from him. Flee from him because he's not preparing you. He's not equipping you. He's not teaching you. You see? When Brother Paul is the one who writes to us and says, hey, the things of old are written for our warning, to warn us, you know, 10 miles an hour, 
There's a turn. It's a nine degree turn. You know, there's not a stop sign. It's just a you know these, these warning signs. Like the, the you know sometimes you see like you know the, like if you're in a different country or you're in one country and then you go visit another country and you're like, what does that sign mean? You know, and they have like different symbols for stop. You know, and maybe you don't understand it's stop and you know or it's, it's a different color and it's like all of a sudden it's like you're going 80 miles an hour and then you know the 90 degree turn and boom you fly off the cliff. That's what the pastors do when they don't teach. Oh, yeah, we just focus on the New Testament, New Testament, because we're New Covenant believers, so we don't do the Old Testament. That's a major warning sign. And Paul says the things of old are written for us, for you and for me, so that we can learn and understand these warnings. We can learn and understand what happened with Korah. Remember Korah and people who followed him? Men, women, children, they died. Why? Wrong formula. It's just like the sign, you know, 10 miles an hour, you know, going 80 miles an hour, go, you know, slow down, slow down, the, you know, big, big flashing lights, slow down, slow down, you know, there's a 90 degree turn. But when you understand formula and then you heed the things of old and the warnings of old and using the examples of old, all of a sudden you see that you're going 80 miles, 80 miles an hour, you see the sign 10 miles an hour. What do you do? You slow down 10 miles an hour. You see the next sign, 10 miles an hour. You're like, you're good to go because you're like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going 10 miles an hour. You see the next, next sign, 10 miles an hour, and you know, no beef with you because you're going 10 miles an hour. And then the next sign, you see the flashing lights, 10 miles an hour, and hey, no, no problem. You know what? I'm fine. I'm going 10 miles an hour. And then the turn comes. You're going 10 miles an hour. Boom, you take the turn. No big deal. You take the turn. Piece of cake. Piece of cake, you take the turn nice and easy. No skidding. No, like, shock. No screaming. No, you just, you know. You know, 10 and 2, you have your hands on the wheel. You take the turn. 10 miles an hour. 90 degree turn. Boom. Piece of cake. Not a problem. Easy. Why? Because you heeded the warnings. You see? But then the person going 80 miles an hour who didn't heed the warnings... They're going to fly off a cliff, but prior to flying off the cliff, they're going to be screaming. They're going to slam on the brakes. They're going to skid. They're going to crash. And, you know, they're going to, you know, kind of lose control and slide over here and slide over there. And then, boom, they're going to fly off the cliff. Why? They never heeded the warnings. They never heeded the warnings. Sign number one, sign number two, 10 miles an hour, 10 miles an hour, 10 miles an hour, 10. The flashing lights, 10 miles an hour. But you and me? Heeding the signs, heeding the warnings. And these warning signs, they've been there for many, many, many moons. And these warning signs, they've been there for a super duper long time. And then somebody tells us, hey, those warning signs, yeah, they were written for your warning. Written for your admonition. And then we start to realize, like, wow, I'm going 10 miles an hour, no big deal. 10 miles an hour, no big deal. The next sign, 10 miles an hour, no big deal. The turn comes, boom, take the turn. It's super easy. Super, super easy. And that's what the Old Testament and New Testament is for us as New Covenant believers. You see how we learn in the Old Testament? We learn about the nature and character of our Lord. The things he likes, the things he doesn't like. And when you and me choose to live lives that are pleasing to him, not as religion, not as religion. It's not like, remember the piano keys, you know, bing, 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 and the white keys and the black keys and bing, bing, bing. No, it's different. 
Why? Because we have a deep, profound love for the composer, capital C, the Word became flesh. We have a deep, profound love for our Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High God. You see? And then we see these warnings, these warning signs of, you know, in the, in, in, in the Old Testament here, in 1 Samuel 11, how the purpose of you know, the Ammonite is to bring reproach on Israel. And as New Covenant believers, it kind of rings a bell like, well, wait a second. What about reproach on the church? And then you start to realize the tactics of Satan. You see? Where are the teachers in these last days? Where are the pastors in the last days? Where are they? To teach. And so that Christians and saints can understand this. But then you have Christians today like, oh, yeah, I only read the New Testament. I only read the New Testament. My pastor says, you know, we're New Covenant believers, so we need to have this understanding of the New Testament only. You see that with the Lutherans, the Episcopals? You see? You see that with the uh, 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 Methodists, modern-day Methodists? And you see it, and you say, wait a second, but they're Christians. They call themselves Christians. They believe in Jesus Christ. And yeah, they, they might say they believe in Jesus Christ, but you know what they're not doing? They're not heeding the entirety of the word of God. Oh, God is love. God is love. God is love. God is love. Yeah, but God is also just. You see, he's also just. And he also judges. And there is also wrath with our God. You see, oh, but God is love. God is love. God. Yes, God is love. But there's more. But there's more. You see. And so Nahash, what he does here is he agrees. Jabesh says, hey, you know, wait seven days, wait seven days. And okay, Nahash just, okay, I'll wait seven days. And that reveals a lot about Israel. That reveals a lot because number one, if things were right, you know, if, if the formula was right in all Israel, the Ammonites, they wouldn't dare say a peep against Israel. You see, remember how the Lord fights. Because if the formula was right in all of Israel, then the Lord says, the promise of the Lord, I will fight your battles. And you will be victorious, just like we see with Joshua. You will be victorious. And then we see what happens with Achan when the formula is wrong in the camp, okay? Now you start to take casualties. Now you start to lose. So the Ammonites wouldn't dare rise up against Israel. Now, even if the formula was just a little bit off, not to say that that's permissible or excusable, but if it was just a little bit off, the reinforcements would come like that. You see? The body caring for the body. Reinforcements would come like that. And so Jabesh says, the elders say, hey, wait seven days. The Ammonites, sure, yeah, we'll wait. And it reveals a lot about Israel. Very important to understand when we, when we read. Remember, if you've been walking with us for a while, do you remember how we would look at these passages of the Old Testament of, of uh, Torah? And we would always say, you know, this is a nice base plate that's going to help us understand future chapters. And you're going to understand why God does what he does. Well, here we are. I mean, we've had moments like this before, but here we are again. And we start to understand why the Lord does certain things and why the Lord doesn't do certain things. You see? 
And someone could say, well, you know, God promises that there's going to be victory, but we don't see victory. Does that mean God is a liar? No, because it is also written. God doesn't lie. He cannot lie. And he does not lie. So how do we how do we reconcile things? And what happens is people formulate their conclusions. And then on top of that, they build they build these doctrines based on false pretense. And they teach as doctrine something that's not even in the Bible. The very thing that we're studying in the book of Mark. Remember last week? How the religious establishment, they teach as doctrine something that's not even in the Bible. Something that's not even written. Something that was never even written. And they teach the tradition of men. But it's still happening today where pastors are teaching the tradition of men. Where is it in the Bible? You could go to the head of any doctrine. Show me where it's in the Bible. Show me where it's in the Bible. You see? Show me. Prove to me. Oh, pastor, prove to me. You see? God is done with Israel. Oh, pastor, prove to me. Prove to me that replacement theology is true. Oh, pastor, oh, learned one. Prove to me that grave soaking is biblically permissible. Prove to me, O learned one. You see? Prove to me, O learned one, that God predestines people to hell. O learned one. Prove to me in the Bible. Prove to me, O learned one. You see? Prove to me, O learned one, that it's okay to take the mark of the beast. Prove to me, O pastor, O learned one. Show me in the Bible. And they cannot do it. Why? They twist the scriptures. They build doctrine on top of doctrine, on top of doctrine, on top of doctrine. But the whole time, the very foundation was tradition. The very thing that the religious establishment was doing in the era of Jesus' earthly ministry is the very same thing that the religious establishment is doing today in these last days. You see, nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. So Nahash here, the the Ammonite, sure, I'll wait wait your seven days. I'll wait your seven days. In seven days, I'm going to have your eyes and I'm going to have a whole bunch of new servants. You see? Look at the boldness of Nahash and the Ammonites. Sure, yeah, no problem. We'll wait seven days. You see? And you consider the last days and the tactics of Satan. Look at the boldness of the demons in these last days. Look at the boldness of Satan in these last days. Look at the boldness. And what is happening with children? The destruction of innocence. Look at the boldness when they have their story hour. You know, you go to the library, you have the the children's story hour, and it's just straight up abomination what is happening. But at the same time, look at the tactics of Satan. Look at the boldness of Satan. Things that are being sold at the stores now. Look at the boldness of Satan. And those are easy. Those are easily pinpointable. Those are easy. Like, okay, you know, because people can see that. But then you look a little bit deeper and you look how love is waxing cold, just as the Bible prophesies, how love is waxing cold. It's like, wow, people are just mean, straight up mean. And you see the tactics of Satan. Wow, he's bold. The demons, wow, they're bold. And you look at 
the Ammonites here. Yeah, we'll wait your seven days. But yeah, I'm going to have my servants. I'm going to have your eyes. And yeah, no big deal. You look at the boldness of the Ammonites. I wonder what I, I wonder what went through his mind while he waited. Nahash. You know, maybe some laughter even. You know, in seven days. In seven days, I'll have I, my pile of eyes. In seven days, I'm going to have a bunch of servants to serve me and my people, the Ammonites. Maybe even laughing at the thought of Jabesh Gilead getting aid and support. Sure, you take your seven days. You want your seven days? Sure, no problem. All you're doing is you're just delaying the inevitable. I wonder if that's what was going on in the mind of Nahash. You see? And look what happens here in verse 4. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. And told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voice and wept. Remember, Israel has a new king here. They have a new king, Saul. And this is the first test on this new king. Well, the, the first test seen by most. There's already been several tests along the way. But this is the first test seen by most. And in verse 5, now there was Saul. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? So the, the messengers of, uh, uh, of Jabesh, they come to Gibeah and, you know, they tell the news to the people and the people like, oh my goodness, I can't believe, you know, the Ammonites, they're coming against, you know, Jabesh and, oh, they make this proposition and there's this offer and counter offer. And, oh my goodness, seven days and they're weeping, they're weeping. And then Saul comes, what troubles the people that they weep? And don't forget, he's king now. He's been anointed. He's king. Remember, long live the king, long live the king. Remember last week? And so it says here in verse 5, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. The, the, the messengers came and says, you know, the, the Ammonites, they've come against us. And they, they tell the words of the men of Jabesh. Now remember, there's this seven-day time frame before the deadline. And servitude unto the Ammonites and seven days before this servitude unto the Ammonites and seven days before, you know, the eyes are coming out. And remember, this servitude, this servitude, it's, it wasn't at gunpoint. It wasn't at knife point or anything. The Jews of Jabesh, they're the ones who made the offer. They're the ones who made the offer. Notice what we see happen. You know, when the Lord has become forgotten, notice what we see happening. When, you know, they say to Samuel, we want a king, we want a king. But it's not the Lord. You see? And then they say to uh, 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 Nahash, we will serve you, we will serve you. But it's also not the Lord. You see what's happening? Because the Jews of Jabesh, they were the ones that made the offer. Hey, we'll bring your servants. You see? But then they say to Samuel, we want a king. But it's not the, in both cases, it's not the Lord. You see how the formula is not just wrong, but when the formula is wrong, how it leads to deeper things that are wrong. You see? That's easy to see how mess begets mess, begets mess, begets mess, begets mess, and things get worse. And then look what happens here in verse 6. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. Now, you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold the phone there. You might say that and ask this question, how can you call things a mess 
when the Spirit of God came upon Saul. How can you call things a mess when all these things are happening and it has the appearance of something good? And the Spirit of the Lord coming on Saul, how could that not be good? Yes, it's good. Yes, it's good. It's completely understandable to have all these questions. How can you refer to things as bad? How can you say this is bad when, look, the Spirit of God is with Saul? But remember, the Spirit, it's coming upon Saul, not Jabesh, not Jabesh. And then also understand, don't get me wrong, Jabesh will be benefactors, but the Spirit is on Saul. And this is a beautiful, beautiful thing we see. And I don't want us to get ahead of ourselves. But what we're going to see unfold in our future studies, future chapters, what we're going to see unfold is how Saul quenches the spirit. Because the spirit of the Lord is on Saul. And that's a beautiful thing. But we're going to see Saul quench the spirit. We're going to see Saul extinguish the spirit. And this is something that the Bible, the word of God, this is something the Bible forbids. You see, because it is written, do not quench the spirit. In the Greek, it translates as do not extinguish the spirit. And this is precisely what Saul does. So the Spirit of the Lord, we see this. And it's like, you know, look at verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. Like, wow, this is beautiful. Praise be to the Lord. And yes, it's beautiful. Praise be to the Lord. Which poses all these questions. Wait a second. How could you say mess begets mess begets mess? How could you say this? How could you pinpoint and say like, you know, like, you know, the Lord became forgotten. We want a king. We want a king. How could you say it's not the Lord? How can you say when 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 the Jews of Jabesh go to the go to Nahash and Nahash comes to and, you know very nearby in close proximity and all of a sudden the Jews of Jabesh say we, we, we we're going to serve you we will serve you we will serve you and then you know they make their offer and then you know uh, the Ammonites make their counter offer we want your eyes to bring reproach on Israel all Israel we want your eyes and then you see the spirit of the Lord on Saul. It's like, wait a second. It, it has the appearance of something good. Listen, it's not just the appearance of something good. No, it is good because you see the spirit of the Lord on Saul. It is good. But what's going to happen in the life of Saul and in Israel? It's not good. It's not good. And yes, mess does beget mess and begets mess and begets mess. And, you know, several chapters into the future, we're going to see a whole lot of mess. And we're going to see things that it's going to get pretty bad. But here at the beginning, at the very, you know, early stages of things that are unfolding, we already start to see certain things that are out of frequency certain things where it's just remember that needle remember we we want to listen to classical music we got to be on 92.3 and listen to classical music and 92.3 is the classical music station and we're at 92.8 where you can kind of hear a little bit of the tune but you hear the scratches you hear the 
and you can hear a little bit of the classical music. No, we got to be at 92.3, and it's old school. It's not like the dig digital where you can just punch in 92.3. Or you, nowadays, you don't have to punch it in. It's just, you know, you hit the scan. Nowadays, you don't even do that. Everybody, nobody uses radio anymore. But back in the day, old school, you had the little, the little needle. You had to turn the little dial, and the needle had to be 92.3 and nice and clear. Nice and clear. And what we're going to see, and what we're seeing, we're not at 92.3 here. We're like at 92.7, 92.6, where we can kind of hear it, but it's off. And then what we're going to see in future chapters, we're going to be at 93, 94, 98, 102, 105, where it just gets further and further and further and further away. And so here in chapter 11, it's like, wow, this kind of seems good because the spirit of the Lord is, you know, came upon Saul and wow, it looks good. But what's going to happen when that dial, when that needle gets to 98 and 101 and 103, we're going to see what's happening is Saul, he's quenching the spirit. And it's going to get to the point where he extinguishes the spirit. Remember the marathon. Very important to understand marathon. And if you're listening for the first time, you're like, what are you talking about? Go and listen to our study. It's called the marathon. Because our study in the marathon, it's going to help you understand Saul. It's going to help you understand Israel. It's going to help you understand the Old Testament, the New Testament. And it's going to help you understand our walk today. It's going to help you. And the long suffering of our merciful, gracious, and loving God. And so Saul has the spirit of the Lord and his anger is aroused at this threat upon Jabesh when he finds out, you know, hey, you know, they, Saul, Saul, they, 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 they've come against us. They want our eyes and, you know, and the anger of Saul with the spirit of the Lord. No, he's angry. And look what happens here in verse seven. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of by the hands of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. Now, it seems fine. It seems like, wow, look, Saul, he's rallying the troops and the spirit of the Lord is with them and he's rallying the troops and, you know, the fear of the Lord is on the people and wow, everything seems fine. But remember, there's something that we already know beforehand. You and me, there's something that we already know beforehand. Something that the prophet Samuel knows too. Israel has forsaken the Lord. Israel has rejected the Lord. And since we know that, you know, what was revealed to Samuel the prophet, we know that beforehand. We know that we're in chapter 11 now, and we know that, well, but, you know, the Lord told Samuel that the people have rejected him. The, 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 the Israel has rejected the Lord. And why even go through with all this? Why even go through with all this? I mean, if Israel has rejected the Lord and they've become an idolatrous, idolatrous people. And if they don't want the Lord as king and they want Saul as king, why even go through with all this? It's because of the marathon. It's because of God's love, his grace and his mercy.
It's because the very nature of our God extends opportunity because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to him. And because people formulate these false doctrines, they say, well, you know, God predestines people to destruction. He predestines people to ruin. He predestines people to hell. And what they don't do is they fail to account for the many, many it is also written. And we understand that God operates within very specific confines that include choice. It includes choice. You and me, we have a choice to make. He doesn't make robots. God does not make robots. You see? And yet you have doctrines of men and they say no god does make robots god by by god's divine will he makes you believe by god god's divine will because you believe that is proof that god wants you in heaven and that is proof that god will make you get to heaven and once saved always saved you see and you can live like hell and once saved, always saved. You can take the mark of the beast and once saved, always saved. You see? You and me, be, and you know, Samuel the prophet, you and me and Samuel, we have this knowledge. Here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And you, me, Samuel, and the Lord, we have this knowledge, pre-knowledge, that things aren't going to go well for Saul and Israel. And yet we see the spirit of the Lord still goes on Saul. Well, why? Why? Well, the marathon. The marathon. And within the confines that includes choice, you know, and that, you know, stretched over time. Within the confines stretch over time during the marathon. I meant, you know, nobody runs a marathon in one minute flat. No. It, it's hours and hours and hours, depending on the marathon and depending on the, on the speed too. It could be like a mile marathon and you finish in, you know, three hours, you know, but in this marathon we call life. Opportunity is given. Opportunity is given for people to return to the Lord. Repent, 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 repent. It happened with Pharaoh. It happened with Pharaoh. Yes, God, and God hardened his heart, but that was judgment on Pharaoh. Judgment on Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then God hardened his heart. But during the marathon of Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, why do you still harden your heart, Pharaoh? You see, it happened with Pharaoh. It happened with Egypt because in Egypt, look at all the hard hearts in Egypt, the advisors of Pharaoh. Look at all the hard hearts and look at how their hearts became soft when they were the ones advising, you know, they, they allied with Moses in, in one degree because it's like they were on the side of Moses because they were the ones saying, Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, let them go. Do what Moses says, do what Aaron says, let them go. Let them, let them go, give them their animals, give them their, you know, let them go because their God is almighty. You see, in their marathon, You see? And so we look at passages like this and it poses all these questions. Well, if, if God predestines ruin and destruction, 
Why even bother with this Ammonite king? Why even bother with the Ammonites? I mean, why not just say, okay, if, if God predestines destruction, why not just let the Ammonite king just, you know, be victorious? Why even bother with the prophets? I mean, why even have why even have the prophets to warn Israel? I mean, if God predestines destruction, why even have the prophets? Why bother sending them? Why have messengers in these last days? Why have apostles in the early church? Why have apostles? Why even bother? I mean, if, if God predestines destruction and if God predestines hell, why, why even have the apostles? You see? And when you understand the marathon, when you understand the marathon, listen to our study. It's called the marathon. And the very specific confines that the Lord operates in, you start to understand why God works in the manner in which he works. You see? And it's love. His mercy. He's long-suffering. You know what long-suffering means? It means suffering for a long time. And he suffers. Why? Because people don't believe in him. And then another reason people do believe in him, but don't obey him. You see? And God has been suffering for a long time. But who is he pleased with? Who is it that is a sweet aroma unto him? He knows. He knows. And we see it all throughout the Bible. You see like, wow, there's a lot of mess over here. There's a lot of mess over here. A lot of mess over here. But then you look like, wow, look at the era of judges. Look at all this mess in judges. But wow, look at Hannah. Look how beautiful she is. Wow, look at Jephthah. Look how beautiful he is. Look at his daughter. Wow, look how beautiful she is. Look at Ehud. Wow, look how beautiful he is. You see? And the eyes of the Lord see. And so when we look at these passages of old, what Paul says is written for us, for you and me, for our warning. You start to understand why God works, how he works. And people always say, but the Bible, the Bible says his ways are not our ways. His ways are not our ways. And to that I say, amen. I say, amen. But what else did Isaiah speak of? What else? Because Isaiah spoke of Messiah. And Messiah spoke of his friends, friends who no longer wonder about the master. Why? Because they know him and they know his ways. Remember, we have to account for the it is also written. But then it begs another question. Who are the friends of the Lord? Who are the friends of the Lord? Oh, it's the, the, the early church and the apostles. They're still friends of God today. Where are they? You look at the fruit. You see? You look at the fruit. That's what the Lord says. Hey, you'll know them by their fruit. Look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. And so Israel here in 1 Samuel chapter 11, they're in one consent. They're ready to fight. They're ready to come to the aid of Jabesh. And everything looks good. Everything's like, wow, look, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. This is good. The spirit of the Lord. Wow, look, this is such a good thing. 
And yes, it is a good thing. And yes, it has an appearance of something good because it is good. The spirit of the Lord is on Saul. But at the same time, we know that in Saul's marathon, we know what's going to happen. And we already see little signs of, wait a second, this isn't good. This isn't good. Remember Saul last week when he was hiding? This isn't good. You look at Israel, you know, immediately making a deal with, with uh, the Ammonites in, in Jabesh. This isn't good. You start to see like, wow, that's not good. And remember, you, me, Samuel, and the Lord. We have this pre-knowledge that things aren't going to turn out so well. And here we are in chapter 11. It's like, wow, this looks like it's going to turn out well. It look, I mean, if we know, we have this pre-knowledge, you, me, Samuel, and the Lord. And, you know, we have this knowledge because it's the Lord who told us about it in his word. But, you know, he, in real time, he said it to the prophet Samuel, you know, several weeks ago in our chapter, in, in the previous chapters. And so you, me, Samuel, and the Lord, we have this pre-knowledge that things are going to turn out so well. They're going to turn out terrible. They're going to turn out bad. They're going to turn out very bad. But here we are in chapter 11, and it seems fine. You see? And then people formulate conclusions. They say, well, you know, God is going to make them. God predestines them. Because God predestines them, God is the one who's going to make them come into ruin. You see, they formulate these conclusions. They, and they present it as doctrine. And they make it doctrine. And people follow them. That was the phobia of Paul. You might well put up with it. What's happening today? Christians, saints, believers, they're putting up with it. The false teachers. But when we understand Marathon, you see, you see Saul in Israel at the mile marker, one mile in. It's like, wow, things look good. Mile two, wow, things look good. Mile three, wow, things look good. Mile four, wait a second, things aren't looking so hot. Things are a little different. Mile five, okay, now it's getting worse. Mile six, seven, eight, and it's like, whoa, it's, we're going to see how things turn out bad. And the whole time, the whole time within the confines of opportunity given, you see how the Lord works. And we see in verse 8, when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, now, remember, uh, 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 Jabesh has this seven-day timeline before the deadline to the Ammonite king. And Israel has assembled and amassed. And they're the ones who say to the messengers of Jabesh, remember, they said the, the, the uh, Jabesh, when, you know, they made the deal with the Ammonite king, you know, give us seven days, just seven days. That's all we ask. And the Ammonite king, sure, you know, the Ammon, you, you want your seven days? Okay, take your seven days. And so the messengers, they go and, you know, Saul gets very mad and the spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul. Now all these, the, 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 the Israel, the warriors, the fighters of Israel, now they, they amass, you know, they, uh, 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 assemble for war. And then they say to the messengers, those, those runners from Jabesh, they say that in verse nine, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. You shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh and they were glad. You see, this isn't a bad thing at all. This isn't because the men of Jabesh, they were like, you know, give us seven days, Ammonite. Give us seven days, Nahash. Give us seven days, Nahash. Sure, take your seven days. 
And then they send runners out. Hey, you know, go to Saul. Go to go to this town and go and report to Saul. And Saul finds out, okay, now we got reinforcements. And then the reinforcements say to the messengers, they say, okay, now go back to your hometown. Go back to your hometown. And tomorrow by this time, you shall have help. You see? And this isn't a bad thing. It's like, wow, look, we got reinforcements. Reinforcements, the, the men of Jabesh. Maybe we can keep our eyes now. Maybe we won't have to be the Ammonite servants anymore. They're glad. And this isn't a bad thing at all. Because gladness does evoke a certain confidence. Absolutely. Gladness does evoke confidence. I mean, like straight up, you know, from the perspective of the Jews of Jabesh. I mean, say, for example, you and me, we, we are residents of Jabesh. And then, you know, the, the Ammonites are there and we're small in number and the Ammonites are there. It's like, whoa, you know, like it's almost like certain death. Like, you know, we're toast. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they make a deal. You know, the, the elders go and then they make a deal. Hey, we're going to be your servants. And then we, we the, the, the elders come back. Okay, you know, the, uh, the, the Ammonites, they agreed, but they want our eyes. What? You made that deal? So they want our eyes. Okay, we're going to be servants. And, you know, they, they, they agreed to that. And we're like, whew. And then the elder, you know, oh, by the way, they want your eyes. Okay. So now, you know, it raises the ante of like our fear level. It's like, okay, that's a big deal. We're on the precipice of servanthood. And then the runners come back. You know, we sent messengers out. You know, the, we say, you know, hey, t tell them seven days. Give us seven days. And so they say, they, 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 they come back. The elders come back. Hey, look, the, the, Nahash, he's given us the seven days. He's given us the seven days. You know, who are the fastest runners here? Okay, you guys, go to run as fast as you can and get to the nearest town and tell them what's happening. Tell them everything. And then all of a sudden, you know, a couple days pass. And then all of a sudden, the runners come back. Like, what did you, what did they, what happened, what happened? And then they tell us about Saul. They tell us about all these things. They tell us about the, the, the assembly, the warriors. And then all of a sudden we're like happy. We're like super happy. And now we have a confidence like, wow, you know what? Our new king, our new king told us that we're going to have help. You see? And now we have this confidence. And so, you know, like we were almost going to be servants. We're at the precipice of being servants. We're at the precipice of having our eyes gouged out. And so this gladness, it's definitely warranted. Definitely warranted. We see in here in, in verse 9, the messengers came and reported to the men of Jabesh and they were glad. That's kind of an understatement. I meant no offense to the word of God, but I meant like when you put yourself in that perspective, it's like, whoa, you know, like, you know, we're not going to be servants. We're going to keep our eyes. And it's like, wow, this is a good thing. And with this new confidence, look what happens. They sent a message to the Ammonite king. And in verse 10, therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. That's what the men of Jabesh say to the Ammonites. Tomorrow, we're going to come out to you. And you do whatever seems good to you. You want to take us as servants? Whatever seems good to you. You want to take our eyes? Whatever seems good to you. Tomorrow, we will come out to you. But then look what happens in verse 11. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. So like all morning long, they were straight up killing Straight up taking names, killing. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Whoa. Now we can look at this from the perspective of victory. 
and we absolutely see victory. The oppressors of Jabesh defeated. Aid has come to Jabesh. And the spirit of the Lord is with King Saul. Hail to the king. Hail to the king. Remember what we looked at last week? Everything seems right. We have victory. But look what happens now. Look what happens now. In verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, now, remember, before we continue here, remember what's, let's just remember what has been happening so far in several chapters back. Samuel, he's a prophet of the Lord, you see? And the Lord has revealed to Samuel what is happening. Remember the marathon? Remember the marathon. Very important to understand the marathon because it's, it's like the smoothie. It's not the hot dog. It's like the smoothie where the Lord reveals to Samuel what is happening. And if you're like, what? You know, we're in the Bible and all of a sudden he's talking about smoothies and hot dogs. Go and listen to the marathon. Because you, you hear us say smoothie and hot dog, you understand when you listen to the marathon. Go and listen to the marathon. It's very important for you. In your walk with the Lord, it's very important for you and me to understand the marathon. Go and listen to the study called the marathon. Because people have formulated these doctrines and built doctrine upon doctrine upon doctrine upon doctrine. Oh, yeah, God created sin. Oh, yeah, God makes people sin because he is sovereign. And God makes people say, oh, yeah, God predestines people to destruction. God predestines people to ruin. It is impossible to fathom his ways. And people formulate these poisons. You see? How can you call it poison? You know, people say, how can you call it poison? How can you call it poison? I'll tell you how. Number one, it doesn't line up with scripture. But number two, you have their pastors that say, go ahead and take the mark of the beast. You'll still be saved. How is that not poison? Take the mark of the beast. When the Bible says you take the mark of the beast, hello, lake of fire. That's what the Bible says. You take the mark of the beast, you're going to burn in hell. Take the mark of the beast, you're going to burn in hell. That's what the Bible says. But then you have pastors, you have pastors, so-called pastors who say, go ahead and take the mark of the beast. You'll still be saved. I mean, no offense if you're in a certain doctrine, in a certain brand of religion, but that's kind of easy. A pastor says, take the mark of the beast, you'll still be saved. When the Bible clearly says, don't take the mark of the beast, that's kind of easy. But you see how people have been seduced? You see, seduction, it's demonic. Go and listen to the marathon. It's very important for you and me to grasp conceptually. Samuel the prophet, he knows what's happening because the Lord says to Samuel, the Lord told Samuel, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They've rejected me. And so the people we see in verse 12, then the people said to Samuel the prophet, the people said to Samuel the prophet, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Whoa. Remember, it's Samuel the prophet who gave the people warning in obedience to God because the Lord says, Samuel, give the people what they want, only this. Give them warning. Tell them about the king that's going to rule over them. Tell them about the king that they so desire in rejecting me. Tell them. And in obedience, Samuel says, okay. In obedience to the Lord, Samuel said, the prophet said, okay, this is, you want that? Okay, this is what's going to happen. 
And in obedience to the Lord, he was obedient. God told him to say it, and he did. And the people, remember several chapters ago, the people say, no, Samuel, we will have our king. We want our king. Total disregard to his warnings. And so the people now here in verse 11, they have their king, Saul. And King Saul has come to their rescue. The Ammonites, the oppressors are defeated. Victory, victory. Everything seems fine. But then they say to Samuel the prophet, they say to him, we want to kill you. We want to kill you. Who is he? Who is he who said, shall Saul reign over us? Over us? Bring the man. Shall Saul reign over us? Question mark. That's what the people say. Bring the men that we may put them to death. That's, they're straight up telling Samuel, we want to kill you, Samuel. Look at the state of Israel. You see, not the state as in the land, but look at the condition of Israel. Look at their hearts. Can you see? Can you see where everything seems right? I mean, the spirit of the Lord is in, 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 has come upon Saul. And everything seems good. The Ammonites, the oppressors came and the oppressors are defeated. Everything seems right. But all of a sudden, remember, classical music, 92.3. We want to listen to classical music, 92.3. And we're not at 92.3. We're at, you know, 92.7. We can kind of hear a little bit of the classical music, but it's kind of scratchy. And you would want the people to be at 92.3. But instead of, we were at 92.7. And instead of turning the dial one way, no, the dial starts to turn the other way. Now, instead of 92.7, which isn't 92.3 where it needs to be, instead of 92.7, it goes 93.8, and then 94, 95, 96, 97. And all of a sudden, you definitely can't hear the classical music because that dial, that needle is getting further and further and further and further and further away. You see? And here we're just at the beginning. Here we're just at the beginning. They want to kill the prophet Samuel. And just as with Saul in his marathon, all of Israel is also in the marathon. You see? And within very specific confines, very specific. And it includes choice. Every single person has a decision to make. And it's the wrong decisions that hardens the heart, you see? And it's the righteous decisions that keep the heart nice and soft. Softer than the softest jello. That's what happens during the marathon. When you look at Egypt, look at all the hard hearts of Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron come to town. And boom, the marathon starts. Everybody's got a hard heart. And the marathon starts. But then in the course of times, hearts become softer and softer and softer. And there's just one left with a hard heart. He keeps hardening his heart. And that's Pharaoh. And the problem that the Egypt made is they submitted themselves to the wrong king. You see? They submitted themselves to the wrong king. 
Instead of saying, yes, I'm Egyptian. Yes, you know, when Moses, before Moses came to town, I hated God. I hated the Jewish people and, you know, all these things. And yes, I have my God in my gods in Egypt and all these things. And then Moses and Aaron come to town and our hearts are hard. Our hearts are hard. And, you know, I can't stand the God that, uh, uh, that Moses and Aaron speak of. But, whoa, you know what? My gods that they can't do the hail. Whoa, you know what? My gods, they're weak. My gods, they're not almighty. It's the Hebrew God. It's the God of Moses and Aaron. He is almighty. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is almighty. And instead of, you know, the Egyptians saying, you know what, you know, I was born Egyptian and you know what, I'm out. I'm hitting the eject button. I am no longer Egyptian. Now I want to be grafted into Israel. I want, I had Pharaoh as my king, but I want God as my king. And so I'm out. Instead of making that transition, there was a, there was a, a, a transition, so to speak, in accordance to the pneumos. But remember, you know, we have feet too. We have feet. And so the Egyptians stayed in Egypt and they submitted themselves and submitting themselves to the Most High King. No, they submitted themselves to Pharaoh King. And as a result, they died. You see? But even they had a marathon where you see hearts getting softer and softer. And the only one left that kept his heart hard and kept hardening his heart, getting worse and worse before it came to stone, that was Pharaoh. You see? Very important to understand how the Lord works and how righteous decision that we make on a day-to-day -day in our marathon, they keep our hearts nice and soft. And so Israel, they straight up tell Samuel the prophet, we want to kill you. You see? Samuel the prophet, when from as a little child, as a little child, he was a beautiful, you know, being, being prepared for such a time as this, as a little child, you know, prepared by his mother. Remember beautiful Hannah? Prepared by his mother. And you look at the early chapters of 1 Samuel chapter 11, and the people knew that the Lord was with Samuel, and Samuel was with the Lord beyond a shadow of a doubt. No, they doubted nothing. Not like Eli. They're not like Hophni and Phinehas, the priesthood. No, the Lord is with Samuel. But in the course of time, they want to kill Samuel. You see? Our ways are better, Samuel. That's what the people say. Our ways are better, Samuel. You want to tell us? You want to, you know, we want a king. We want a king. We want a king. And you want to warn us about the king that we want? Now look, the king, the king that you warned us about, look, now we're safe because of him. The king that you warned us about, look, our, 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 our oppressors are defeated. So therefore, Samuel, you were wrong. And because you were wrong, because you are a false prophet, now we want to put you to death because we have our victory. You see? You see how they twist the scriptures? Because there's are, there are laws about stoning false prophets. 
You see? And so they're twisting Torah. They're twisting the scriptures to accommodate their own carnality, to accommodate their own understanding. They twist the scriptures. Nothing new under the sun. The scriptures today, they get twisted. When the whole time the formula isn't right in Israel. And the Lord told Samuel, the prophet, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. You see? Very important to understand how, how the Lord works. But then at the same time, you look at human nature. And human nature and see that, wow, when the formula is right, wow, it's good. But when the formula is right, don't expect to be liked by the people. Because you look at the life of the prophet Samuel. When, you know, when, when Eli became defunct and Eli was killed and, you know, there was no widespread revelation in those days when Samuel the prophet was young. No, the people loved him. They knew, wow, the Lord is with Samuel and Samuel is with the Lord. But when they get off track, when the people get off track, when the Lord becomes forgotten in them, look at how they don't stop believing in the Lord. No, they want to apply the penalty of the law and false prophets. They want to apply that penalty unto Samuel. Because, oh, you know, Samuel, you want to you wanna judge us, Samuel? Don't judge me lest you be judged, Samuel. You want to judge us and say, you want to warn us about the king that we want? Look, our king has rescued us. You see, our king has saved us. Our king has answered our call. I wonder how many people in Israel were praying for a, a king. I wonder how many people were praying for a king. Oh, Lord, we, give us a king, Lord. Give us a king, Lord. We want to be like these other peoples. We want to be like these, you know, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the, 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 the Moabites. We want to be like all these people and have a king. Oh, Lord, give us a king. Oh, Lord, give us a king. And all of a sudden, there's victory here in chapter 11. And I, I wonder how many people of Israel were worshiping and praising the Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord, for giving us Saul. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a king. Thank you for providing for us, Lord. I wonder how many people were praying to the Lord and misapplying the scriptures. Thank you, Lord. Oh, look, you have answered our prayers. We have a king and he has saved us. But nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. These are the very things that are going to happen in the last days. The very things that are going to happen in the last days. When there's such turmoil on the earth. Such perilous times and times of tribulation. And perilous times and all these things are going to befall the earth. And I wonder how many people today are praying, Lord, give us a king. Lord, give us a king. Give us a person that's going to fix this world. That's going to fix this world. All this mess that we see, this uh, uh, ethnic division, these wars and rumors of wars. Lord, give us a king. And I wonder, this world leader that rises up 
and fixes problems, fixes that, and fixes this war, and this war, and that war, and no nuclear war, no more nuclear war, and the, the king that's going to solve these ethnic divisions, and oh, wow, look, the man with the plan, and all this and that. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We have our king. Now there's peace in the land. Now we can have peace and safety. Now we can have peace and safety. Where are those dumb Christians? Where are those wrong Christians who warned? Where are those radical Christians who warned us about the last days, who warned us about an antichrist, and they want to call this man of peace the antichrist? You know what? Kill them. Send them in prison. Put them in prison. And if in prison, they just it just so happens that they get their heads chopped off, eh, no big deal. Good riddance. You see? And what does the Bible say? Prophecy? When they say peace and safety, boom, sudden destruction. You see? So as New Covenant believers, we look at these passages and it's like, wait a second. This sounds awfully familiar. This sounds awfully familiar with the play-by-play of what's happening in the last days. Nothing new under the sun. The people of Israel. When Samuel was a little boy, oh look, Samuel, he's such a, a sweet, sweet boy. Oh look, he does he wears this, the the, the 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 robe, the garment, the priestly garment. Oh look. Oh, his mom made that for him. Oh look, what you know, she's so beautiful. Oh look, this is awesome. Oh, and, and, and Eli the priest wants to be defunct and the Lord killed him. And oh, but we know, you know, the, uh, the, the wicked sons, you know, Hophni and Phinehas, they're wicked. But oh, the Lord is with Samuel. The Lord is with Samuel. And Samuel is with the Lord. They have a beautiful intimacy. You know, let's listen to what Samuel says. Let's listen to everything that Samuel says because it's good for us. Because he watches out for us. Oh, because, you know, he guides us and he teaches us and he's a nice covering for us. But then in the course of time, Samuel, we want a king. We want a king. Make us a king. Make us a king. We want a king. And Samuel says, no, you have a king. It's the Lord. You have a king. And then the Lord says to Samuel, no, Samuel, give them what they want. Give them what they want. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. But before, warn them. Warn the people. And so Samuel warns them, okay, this king, he's going to be cruel to you. He's going to take of your family. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take it and put, the, put them as, at make, make them his servants. You see? It's, gonna, it's not going to end up good, oh Israel. It's not going to end up good. It's going to end up bad. It's going to turn out bad. And Samuel, in obedience to the Lord, he warns the people, warns Israel. A people who had once, you know, hey, you know, the Lord is with Samuel. We love Samuel. He guides us. You see? He teaches us. He's a nice covering. He intercedes for us. He's a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord is with him. And he's with the Lord. And look at this beautiful intimacy. But as soon as Samuel says something that goes against what their desires are, you start to see the revealing of the heart. You see? And here we are in chapter 11. It's like, wow, they have victory. 
The king that they desired has given them victory. The king that they desires has the spirit of the Lord. And then, wait a second, it poses all these questions. Is this a setup job? Is the Lord setting them up for disaster? Is the Lord setting them up for destruction? No, 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 no. Remember the marathon. We have to understand the marathon. And within the confines of the marathon, look at these choices that are being made. Choices which begets choices, which begets choices. And in these choices, you start to see mess upon mess upon mess. And in this mess, you see the people that once heeded Samuel. Now they're saying, Samuel, twisting the scriptures. Samuel, we want to kill you. We want to put you to death. You see? That's heavy. But the same thing is going to happen in the last days. In the last days. Where are those radical Christians that spoke of the last days? Where are those radical Christians that spoke of the Antichrist? Where are those radical Christians that says, this guy is evil when he's bringing peace? Where are those radical Christians? You know, put them, put them in jail. Shut down their businesses. Cancel them. Get rid of them. You see? Oh, they're, they're Christians. Oh, shut down their churches. You see? Hate speech. Shut down their churches. No, we live in a time of peace and we worship God and God is a God of love and God has sent this Messiah. And they call him the Antichrist. These radical Christians, they call the Messiah the Antichrist. No, put them in prison, off with their heads. Shut down their ministries. They want to call it ministry. No, it's just hate speech. They're so mean. They're so mean. They want to call this man of peace the Antichrist. Look what he's done for us. He solved all the wars. We were on the brink of nuclear, you know, and now we don't have nuclear. See, nothing new under the sun. It's going to happen again. You see? And when you understand formula, when you understand marathon, when you understand the word of God, Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, you start to realize like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. How things pan out. Very important. And so the people, they want to kill Samuel the prophet. And Paul says in verse 13, but Paul said, now remember, King Saul has the spirit of God. And so as much as we see like, you know, like, wow, you know, what's happening? Is this a setup job? Number one, no, it's not a setup job. You see, the Lord operates within the marathon, you know, very specific confines of the marathon, you see. And it's not to say how, you know, the Lord operates. It's not, it's not clay saying this of the potter. No. Not that at all. You know, sometimes, you know, when I have these conversations with people, people say, you know, how dare you say that? Because are, 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 are you saying, you know, that God has to operate within these confines? Now, are, are, you, are you attempting to be clay uh, 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 molding the potter? No, not at all. Not at all. It's the potter who has told us how he works. You see? It is the potter who has told us how he works. And within those confines, in the marathon of life, King Saul, he has the spirit. 
And it's not going to turn out well as Saul quenches the spirit and extinguishes the spirit. It's not going to turn out well for him and those who submit themselves to him. Just like with Egypt. Egypt, you know, their hearts were hard and they submit themselves to Pharaoh. Not good. It would have been better if they just said, hey, we hit the eject button. You know, Pharaoh, if you want to do that, okay, you do that. You know what? I was born in Egypt. I was raised in Egypt, but now I'm with Israel. I'm in the camp of Israel. You see, bye-bye Egypt. It would have been so much better, but they submitted themselves to the wrong king. You say, oh, that's Egypt. That's Egypt. But listen, what we're going to see in Israel, they submit themselves to the wrong king. And it's Saul. You see? It's Saul. Just like, remember our study in Deuteronomy 28? How it's so much easier for, you know, to be outside the camp. And it's so much easier to get cleaned up and get right back in the camp. You know, take two steps out of the camp and, you know, get cleaned up and boom, you know, come back in the camp. But when that doesn't happen in that marathon, when that doesn't happen, you know what, what, what the end result is? Egypt all over again, bondage all over again. You see, the Lord is the one who has explained the concept of the marathon. You see, sometimes when I have these conversations with certain sects of Christianity, what they refer to as Christianity, but it's unbiblical. And certain sects, they say, you know, they, they call God sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. But don't forget, it's the sovereign God who has taught us about the marathon. Go and listen to our study in Deuteronomy 28. You'll understand that in the Torah, what is written of this marathon. And the whole time, the whole time, God is just doing exactly what he said. Even in the last days, when you look at the events of last days prophecies, and when you look at the, the penalties for disobedience, and you look at Deuteronomy 28, go and listen to our study, Deuteronomy 28. It's like, wait a second, the Lord, he's just doing exactly what he said he would. Even with the birds, he's just doing exactly what he said he would. Remember? It's so powerful. And how good our Lord is. How good he is. And one can pose the question, how could you call him good when all this destruction? Listen, this destruction, number one, it happens for a reason. But number two, it's our Lord who made the way. The blueprints that he gave to Noah with the ark. And what about the blueprints he gives to us with his son? His only begotten son. You see? And so King Saul, the people, Israel, they want to kill the prophet Samuel, misapplying the scriptures. They want to stone him, assuming him, supposing him to be a false prophet. You see, I wonder what their chosen prophets were saying. Oh, look, you see, our prophecy has come to pass. Our prophecy has come to pass because, you know, we, we, we prophesied that the king will save you. And look, King Saul has saved you. Oh, look, our prophecies has come to pass. You know, who is the one that was judging you? Who was the one that was being mean to you? Who was the one that tried to, you know, uh, uh, warn you? Where is he? And the people say, hey, bring all those people who were the naysayers, which included you, Samuel. And you know what? We want to kill you all. And then Samuel in, or Saul intercedes. 
And Saul has the spirit of the Lord. And at this particular moment, at this milepost of his marathon, he does have the spirit of God. And he hasn't extinguished the spirit yet. And so Saul is the one. In verse 13, but Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Samuel the prophet said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Wow. You see, Samuel, he's also operating within very specific confines, and he's in obedience to the Lord. You see, Samuel, he's in the know. The Lord has given him the pre-knowledge of what's going to happen. But with this pre-knowledge of knowing what's going to happen, Samuel, in obedience to the Lord, still operates within the confines of obedience unto the Lord. You see? Obedience unto the Lord. Very important to understand. It's just like in the marathon that we're in. You can be, I mean, not to say that it's permissible. I'm not saying you can be like in terms of you do this, but you might be in a situation where you're realizing right now that you're disobedient. You might be in a situation right now that you're starting to realize like, oh my goodness, I am apostate. You know, I submit myself to the Joyce Myers. I submit myself to the Benny Hins. I submit myself to good old Mac with the study Bible. And I submit myself to all these teachers and all these pastors. And you're just now starting to realize that you, my beautiful friend, are in the wrong. And you're just now starting to realize that, you know what? I'm not even a believer. And I used to hate God. But you know what? I'm starting to realize now that God has made the way and he's presented his son as the ark. And I understand these blueprints, not, you know, a lot, but I understand enough to, you know, where I'm at, I shouldn't be, and I need to get in the ark. So whether you are a believer or a non-believer, and when I say believer, lukewarm. If you're a disobedient believer, or if you're a lukewarm believer, or if you're a non-believer, and you're just now starting to realize like, oh my goodness, I'm the one who's in the wrong, and I see God's love now. I understand his mercy. I understand his grace. I understand his love for me. And I want to respond to his love by being right with him, by being clean with him, by being purified in him and by him and for him. You know what I say? Let's get you cleaned up. Let's get you cleaned up. Because yes, you're on a marathon and the path that you were on was destruction. The path that you were on wasn't good. Not a good path. I mean, to be in disobedience to the Lord or to not even believe in the Lord. No, that's a very bad path. And you're just now starting to realize. And there are people who say, well, you're on that path. And that means you're predestined to the destruction, the, 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 end, the end result of that path. You're predestined to the lake of fire. But you know what? They're the liars. They're the ones who serve their father, the devil. But as for you. My beautiful, beautiful friend of whatever sect, of whatever brand of religion, of whatever brand of non-religion, atheist, even the Satanist. And I had these conversations with the Satanists too. 
whatever camp you're in, you're just now starting to realize, you know what? I'm in this marathon and I'm pretty messed up. And I say, praise be to the Lord. You know why? Because with the acknowledgement of being messed up, with your acknowledgement of being in a situation that isn't right before the Lord, with your acknowledgement of, you know what? I'm dirty. I'm not clean. Let's get you cleaned up. Because we operate within very specific confines. Blueprints given by the potter. We are the clay. Very specific confines. And within these confines and the blueprints, the Lord has messengers. The Lord has people to say, Hey, let's get you cleaned up. Hey, stop going in that path. Hey, stop running in that direction. Look it, there's a better way. You see? Jump ship, there's a better way. And we continue on in the marathon, but it's different. It's different. It's not the wide way. It's the narrow way, what the Word of God teaches us. And that finish line, it's not on this earth. That finish line is in paradise. You see? And if that's you, whatever sect, whatever religion, whatever non-religion, even if you're atheist, even if you're Satanist, and you're just now starting to realize, you know what? I need to get in the ark. I need to get in that beautiful, beautiful boat. I need to jump ship. I'm on this boat and it's bad and I need to jump ship and get on this other boat. Or I'm not even in the boat and I need to get in the boat. If that's you, hit pause, listen to the message, how to commit your life to Christ. How to commit your life to Christ. And you commit your life to Christ right here, right now. And get in the ark. And once you're in the ark, boom. We continue on this journey together, you and me, on our way to paradise. Very, very specific blueprints. Very specific formula. Very specific recipe. And the Lord, in the word of God, Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, he's the one who teaches us. You see? He's the one who teaches us. Remember? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit as teacher. Praise be to the Lord. Praise be to the Lord. And you see Samuel here, Samuel the prophet. They want to kill him. The people, you look at the people's heart. Had it not been for Saul, they would have stoned Samuel. You see? Had it not been for Saul, who has the spirit of the Lord. I mean, you look at Saul here at the beginning of his marathon. And you look at Saul at the end of his marathon. Number one. The, 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 the beginning, he has a spirit. The end, no spirit. Why? What happened? He quenched it. You see? He quenched it. He extinguished it. What the Bible forbids. Don't extinguish. You see? And then you have people say, well, God made him do it. God predestined him. to. God made him do it. It was a setup job. No, 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 no. No, no, no. That's idolatry. Because that's another God. That's not the God of the Bible. You see? That's idolatry. They call God sovereign. They call God sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. But who they call sovereign is an idol. You see? Very important to understand. The, the blueprints are very, very specific. Ultra specific. And ultra clear. When the formula is right. You see? And Samuel here, they want to kill him. But Samuel says, no, let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. They want to kill him. Look at the heart of Samuel. In obedience to the Lord, look at the heart of Samuel. He doesn't say, you want to kill me? Okay, I'm going to kill you guys. 
He didn't say, you want to kill me? Okay, I'm out of here. No, he operates within very specific confines. Remember, the people have a choice to make. And yes, they make really bad choices. And it's going to get worse. But the whole time you see how the Lord is long-suffering. And then you see how his servants, the Lord's servants, are also long-suffering, hurting. Why do you think Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet? He was lonely, yes. But they called him the weeping prophet because he would weep for Judah. He would weep for Israel. You see, when Paul would write his letters, you know, with tears in my eyes, I say this. Paul would write his letters, you know, did I labor for you in vain? Have you believed in vain? And he would write his letters. And I wonder, just, it's not written in scripture. But in my heart of hearts, I wonder if, you know, people couldn't make out the words on the parchment because his teardrops would drip on the paper, on the parchment. That's just me. I mean, have you ever seen like ink, you know, like, you know, nowadays they have like super ink where you write and it doesn't smear. But back in the day, you know, you have ink and you have to let it dry. And I wonder if like you see like a letter or like a word and it's like all smudgy and smeary because as it was written, a tear went out of his eye, went down his cheek. Got to his chin and then just dripped on the parchment. Boom. And it spread. I wonder what those words look like. If people had to take like, you know, five minutes. Is this what the word is? Is this what the piece? Oh, yeah. Wow, Paul was. Paul was crying for us. We got this beautiful letter, this parchment from Paul. But look at all these splotches. Paul's crying for us. As he writes to us and pleads to us. So that we can be clean and pure before the Lord. And you look at the Colossian saints like, wow, we've never met Paul. We've never met Paul and he loves us. We've never met him before. And he writes like this. You see. And so Samuel, in obedience to the Lord, you know, let's renew the kingdom there. Samuel, vessels of the Lord, they always operate within the confines of the blueprints of the Lord. Otherwise, they would be disobedient. You see? They would be disobedient. I mean, if Paul says, sees the problem in Corinth, Chloe, those in the the household of Chloe, they say, hey, Paul, we got a problem in Corinth. We got a problem in Corinth. And what if Paul wrote back, hey, you know what? That's nice. That's nice. No big deal. The guy wants to do his sex. No big deal. The guy wants to do his extortion. No big deal. Just love them. Just love the people. Dear Chloe, just love on the people because God is love. No, you know what happened? Then Paul would be disobedient to the word of God and the word became flesh. Paul would be operating within blueprints that don't line up to the biblical blueprints. Paul would be the one misaligned with scripture. Paul would be the one who twists the scripture. That's if that were the case. But that's not the case. Paul is obedient. You see? Peter is obedient. He had some rough patches, but praise be to the Lord, he had humility. James in obedience. Samuel in obedience. Jeremiah in obedience. Isaiah in obedience. Obadiah in obedience. Zechariah, Zephaniah in obedience. Amos in obedience. You see? Praise be to the Lord. Operating within these very specific confines for 
people in their marathon to shout out, hey, get right with the Lord. Hey, let's get you cleaned up. Hey, that's the wrong path. You see? And we see in verse 15 in closing. So all the people went to Gilgal. Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Rejoiced greatly. Now, in our studies in the era of Saul and his leadership over Israel, they have the king they want. And we're going to see choices that are made along the way in their marathon. We're going to see choices that they make that lead to ruin. And here in chapter 11. Here in chapter 11. Things seem relatively okay. I mean, relatively okay because, you know, we and, and at the same time, we notice things are off. Because look, we, we have victory. The Ammonites defeated. We have victory. But then we notice things that are off because Israel, they want to kill the prophet. They want to kill Samuel. So we notice things that are off. I mean, that's kind of an understatement. You know, it's, it, off is an understatement because they want to kill Samuel. I mean, that's more than just off. But with eyes to see, you can see their hearts. You see, where's the jello? Ain't no jello. You see, where are the hearts that are softer than the softest jello? You see it in Samuel. You see? You see it also in Saul to a certain degree, but that changes. You see a little bit of, of, of softness, a little bit more hardness in the people, and that gets harder and harder. Down the road with Saul and Israel, we're going to see destruction. We're going to see ruin. We're going to see oppressors. I mean, the Ammonites here, that's just one form of oppression we're gonna see more and here in chapter 11 we see the oppressors defeated and that's good but down the road there's gonna be more there's gonna be more and this is something that our lord has taught us about the pneumos in the spirit realm about a demon a demon who oppresses and a demon, when confronted with Jesus, the biblical Jesus, whose word is above his name. When a demon is confronted with Jesus and a person who has a demon is confronted with Jesus and a demon leaves a person. Praise be to the Lord. You know what that is? Victory. Victory. In the pneumos, victory. And in the life of a believer... It is victory when that happens. When, you know, a person is given, has demon possession and gives, give, is given over to the, and, 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 and uh, uh, corrupts himself or the demon who uh, uh, oppresses into sex and uh, uh, drugs and alcohol and things of the flesh. And you see demonic influence and demonic oppression. But when that ceases, Confronted with Jesus, that is a victory, absolutely a victory. But our Lord teaches us that the demon does not die in the pneumos, in the spirit realm. The demon does not die. You see, what happens is the demon 
goes and gets reinforcements. And the demons return. And the, that demon returns with the reinforcements. And those are reinforcements that are stronger than the original demon. And the reinforcements, they're other demons. It's not the one demon coming back with like, you know, weapons. No, it's the demon coming back with other demons. You see? And it's at, at first victory, it's very, very true that a person can be glad, rightfully glad, because it's victory. And a person can have confidence in having victory in the Lord. And confidence, it's not carnal. Confidence must always be with the Lord. Confidence must always be with the Lord and with matters holy in accordance with very specific blueprints and formula and the recipe for righteousness. I mean, you look at, look at Stephen. He had confidence, but it wasn't carnal confidence. It was a holy confidence. And what happened with Stephen? He saw the Lord. You see? But when it's carnal confidence, carnal confidence, confidence that is of the world, of the flesh, It can lead to pride, which leads to arrogance. And that arrogance creates a chasm with humility. And that creates an unholy confidence. And that hardens the heart. And the heart being hard is a heart that is not prepared. A heart that is not equipped. And it all happens in the course of time. Old Testament, New Testament, and still today. In the Old Testament, we're going to see it in the flesh. Remember, observe Israel according to the flesh. We're going to see it in the flesh with the Ammonites. We're going to see it with more opposition, more oppression. We're going to see it. Look at the oppressors in the era of Joshua. You see, praise be to the Lord because they were defeated. They were defeated. The problem with, with the, the, uh, 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 the, the battles in the era of Joshua were not external. They were internal. Sin in the camp, Achan. You see, and Achan had a choice to make and Achan chose wrong. Go and listen to our study through Joshua chapter seven. And so in the Old Testament, we have these examples according to the flesh. But in the New Testament, we have examples according to the spirit. And when we say according to the spirit, it's not according to the spirit with a capital S. No, it's according to the spirit with a lowercase s, according to the pneumos. And in the pneumos, there is the capital S, which is the Holy Spirit. But there's a very specific formula to be sealed by the spirit. Because don't forget in Acts chapter uh, in uh, 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 Acts 8, where, where you see how there's believers, they're baptized into Christ. They believe in Jesus. They fellowship together but they do not have the spirit of the Lord, you see? And, you know, John and, and Peter come to town and they lay hands and they receive the spirit. But at the same time, the spirit skipped one, Simon. Why? Wickedness, you see? So we look at the New Testament and according to the spirit, according to the pneumos, according to the spirit, lowercase s, in the spirit realm. Now, in the spirit realm, there's demonic and there is holy. And holy is where you see capital S, the Holy Spirit. You see? Remember the, the demon with the sons of Siva? Jesus, we know. Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who in the world are you? You see? Paul had the right formula. Jesus, he is the formula. 
And the demon, you know, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who in the world are you? You see? It's still today. It's still today. And it's even worse today. You know why? Because Satan and the demons, they know their time is short. As written in prophecy, they know their time is short. And so a demon leaves a guy. And then the demon returns, but he comes back with stronger demons. And these stronger demons, they're coming back to Christians. In these last days, they're coming back to believers. In these last days. Now, you look at the pastors and teachers of our present time, 2023 AD. You look at the present pastors, teachers, ministry leaders, teaching ministries, TBN, Tricking Believers Nightly. You look at all these so-called leaders. Which one is equipping Christians? Which one is equipping believers to fight in a manner that they will be victorious when the stronger demons return? Not a lot. Not a lot. They're out there. But not a lot. You see? And it's believers who are being defeated. Believers, Christians who are being defeated. And their state, as our Lord says, is worse than when they believed. Worse than when they believed. You see? Remember, it's Paul who says that these things of old, they're written for us to warn us, to admonish us. It's just like, you know, the 10 miles an hour, the sign number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and then 11, you get the flashing lights, you know, 10 miles an hour, 10 miles an hour. But what happens when nobody heeds the warnings of old, flying down the highway at 80 miles an hour, the 90 degree, 90 degree turn comes and boom, flying off a cliff. Death. You see? Oh, God predestined the crash. God predestined. God had this pre-knowledge and he told that this would happen and they were predestined to crash, to fly off the cliff and blow up and explode. And there's, you know, the burning inferno and they were predestined for that. No, that's not what the Bible says. They didn't heed the warnings. You see, by choice, they didn't heed the warnings. Oh, but they have the Holy Spirit, so it's a setup job. God made them hit the gas. No, no, no. It's not a setup job. If they had the Spirit, they quench the Spirit. They extinguish the Spirit. You see? Very important to understand. This is serious business. Not to imply that it ever was not serious business. It's very serious business. Satan does not fight fair. You see? The fellowship of the saints is a beautiful thing, but the Lord teaches us about formula. You know what to look for. I mean, if you're in a church, if you're straight up in a church that, you know, you know, oh, look, the fellowship of the saints and we gather and we sing Kumbaya. We gather together and we just spend time for 30 minutes and we just sing Kumbaya. Listen, if that's your church, leave, leave, find a church that's going to teach you how to fight. Pastors who will train you how to fight straight up, you know, get on the, uh, the spiritual mat and roll around and learn to fight hand-to-hand -hand combat, spiritual warfare, spiritually speaking. Pastors who will train you, equip you, and cover you, protect you, and guide you. Because the demons, demonic activity, things of Satan, it's on the rise big time, big time.
In the pneumos, absolutely. It's, it's, it's been there in the pneumos. Absolutely in the pneumos. But don't forget, it is written that in the last days, the Holy Spirit is going to be lifted. It's going to start to be lifted. What do you think the world is going to look like when the Holy Spirit is lifted away? What do you think that world will look like? You see, the pneumos, it's always been there. The spirit world, the spirit realm. And there is holy in the spirit realm, but there's also evil in the spirit realm. And when the Holy Spirit, capital S, the capital H, capital S, Holy Spirit is lifted, that's when the pneumos, the spirit realm, now it becomes kinetic, officially kinetic. And it's the church is taking massive, massive casualties, major casualties as apostasy spreads and gets worse and worse. You see, it's serious business. You know, if you're in a church, you know, you, you want to sing Kumbaya, listen, jump ship. That's, that's not good. And when we look at the marathon of Saul and the marathon of Israel, you and me, we must also consider our marathon. And we learn along the way as we study the scriptures. Very important to understand. Sometimes, you know, people look at the Old Testament and, they, oh, I don't want to read that because we're a new covenant believer. We're new covenant believers, so we don't study the Old Testament. But we look at just this one chapter. Look at what the Lord has shown us application for us in these last days as we fight the good fight you see as we fight the good fight until our last dying breath to the beautiful 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 people of the way a remnant of these last days god bless you i love you